He rubbed his eyes to dislodge the debris. It felt as though the grit was cutting the corneas of his eyes. He stood up. He tried to shout Sarah's name, but he gagged. As he moved with his hands in front of him, like a man in an unfamiliar black closet, he was propelled to his left by the second thunderous explosion. Something struck his left shoulder. At first it felt like a punch. He put his right hand on his shoulder, groping. He touched a tear in the fabric of his jacket, and then the warm, sticky blood. Feeling a freezing flush of fear throughout his body, he tried to lift his arm. The pain was excruciating. He screamed. His own voice sounded as though he were underwater. He barely heard it. He didn't want to fall again. He feared the people on the ground were all dead. He had a sense that if he went to the ground, he'd never rise again. He staggered like a damaged boxer, but stayed on his feet. In the aftermath of the second explosion, there were no sounds, no screams, no sirens, no voices, not even the sounds of birds. That eerie silence lasted only seconds. A hand grabbed his right arm. It was as if a lifeguard pulled him from a drowning downward spiral. He came face to face with Dick McGuire, the leader of a security detail. Stay on your feet, Maya. Stay on your feet. You can move. Follow me. Where's Sarah? Keep moving. Keep moving. Don't stop. Don't stop. Where's Sarah? Let's move! Move! They reached a security door at the edge of the roof garden. It had been blown open. In the stairwell, the air was slightly clearer. Roland, who had been smothered by the swirling dust outside, began gulping for air. When he tried to sit on the steps, McGuire held him up against the wall. Catch your breath, Maya. We can't sit down. We've got to get out of here. What happened? Forget it. Got to get out. Roland Fortune was an athlete. He ran almost every weekend of the year in Sunday morning races in Central Park, along with thousands of other runners, and that strength and his fear supported him as he moved down the stairwell. Two other members of Roland Fortune's security detail were waiting for him and McGuire when they burst through the emergency door on the museum's main floor. Screams, frantic movements, rolling clouds of dust. Centuries-old statues were toppled and broken. Stained glass windows were shattered. McGuire and the other security men bracing Roland Fortune up and hustling him along, were the only people with any sense of direction. They were headed to the rear wall, once all glass, that faced the lush greenery of the park's gorgeous nineteenth-century interior. Everyone else was moving erratically. They were dazed. There were bodies all over the floor. Fires were burning on marbled walls and floors. And then there was a third explosion. Every pane of glass on the rear wall shattered into countless shards. More and more dizzy and unfocused, Roland felt himself lifted through a gaping space in the wall. Outside on the sloping lawn, the world seemed almost peaceful while he was eased gently onto the grass. Just as he passed out, he smelled the rich, moist odor of the grass and earth, and of blood, his own. Chapter 2 Gina Carbone, the commissioner of the New York City Police Department, began eating the rich antipasta her mother made, that magician of food had created for the family's annual start of summer get-together. Gina loved the texture of the cheese wrapped in the carpaccio, the succulent slices of tomatoes, and the tang of the marinated artichokes. The flagstone patio of the family house on Staten Island overlooked Fort Wadsworth, the Coast Guard base that had resembled a small New England college campus, and the glistening expanse of the Verrazano Narrows Bridge. As a very young but observant girl, she had spent hours watching the bridge being built. 
It seemed to evolve out of thin air, gradually materializing like a spider's web. Her father was an ironworker who spent six years of his life on the construction crews, fashioning the stunning span that arcs like a filament for the two miles between Staten Island and Brooklyn. They lived so close to the Staten Island side of the bridge that her father was able to walk to and from work each day, carrying his gunmetal gray lunchbox. She still thought of him whenever she saw the graceful arc of the bridge. Auntie, her thirteen-year-old niece Elena said, Mom says you had a date last night. Gina was uncomfortable the way Elena, her favorite niece, was changing. She had a small silver stud embedded in her left nostril. Gina had been tempted to tell her that it looked like snot, but she restrained herself. And now she noticed a tattoo in the shape of an eyelash on her niece's left wrist. And, of course, Elena had taken to teasing about her unmarried aunt's love life. I did, Gina said. But you got home.